Can you make smarter AI systems by combining biological neurons with silicon chips? Welcome to the AI Show with Junkus here. Almost all AI uses silicon chips, right? That's the artificial in artificial intelligence. But what about brain cells, real life, actual brain cells, neurons? Kind of like using what's already known to be capable of intelligence. I'm bringing in Han Wang Chong, CEO and co-founder of Cortical Labs with Andy Kitchen, the CTO, to talk about is biological computing the future of AI? Welcome, guys. Hey, hi, hi. hey, hey, John. Glad to have you here. Talk to me. What did you build? Yeah. So what we've actually built is a hybrid chip that is comprised of a CMOS sensor. So it's a silicon chip with a very fine mesh of electrodes. They're about 17 microns uh, in pitch and there are about 22,000 of them. And what we've done is we've taken live neurons that we've extracted from mice embryos or we've differentiated them from stem cells and grown neural networks on the actual chip surface and these neurons you know start forming synapses and they then start to sort of hybridize with the actual silicon surface and because these are electrodes we can see the electrical activity and also apply a stimulus a bit of a voltage and in a sense now we have a read and write interface into a biological substrate so this seems super science fictiony, right? I mean, actual brain cells, and I know you're getting them from really, really, you're not stealing them from somebody's brain. Um, no, you're, you're, that's what we're <laughs> telling investors anyway. What's that? Sorry. That's what we're telling investors. <laughs> we're not stealing any brains. Not Excellent. Zombies. Very good. You're not zombies. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, but why are you doing this? Yeah, so for us, we did a bit of research quite a few years back, and we were looking at the AI space. And of note was the call to action by folks like Demis Sabas from DeepMind, and even Jeff Hinton as well from Toronto about re-engaging back with neuroscience. And he was calling for the AI researchers to, you know, look and see what, what have we done in neuroscience and how do we learn from some of the stuff that's come through neuroscience and reincorporate it back into AI. We took, that, we took that a little bit too literally and went all the way straight into the neuroscience space because we, the, the more we started to learn about the work that was coming out from some of our colleagues in Japan, from an institute called Riken, where they were able to get these neurons to sort of, you know, perform a basic computational task called the blind source separation. We were more, we were blown away by that kind of uh, research. And we thought, you know what, this is probably going to be something really big if we can actually show that it can do more than just blind source separation and do a lot more other uh, tasks for us. So that's kind of part of the reason why we decided we wanted to build this because we said, look, you know, the only machine or the only thing that we know of that actually has true intelligence is the brain. And the brain is made up of many sort of organoids and then they're made up from neural networks. And then you have the neurons that sort of, you know, that's the hierarchy. And somewhere along that hierarchy, we start getting these amazing things like, you know, intelligence, consciousness, and so forth. So for us, we, we, we said, let's start with the basic building structure, the building blocks being neurons, and let's build our way up and maybe we'll get there uh, along the way. So it's super interesting. Let's dive into that just a little deeper. How do you attach an actual living neuron to a silicon chip? Uh, what are the connection points? How do you do that? And how do you keep it alive? 
Yeah, so the system we use, as Han was saying, are these uh, microelectrode arrays. So they're really grids of microscopic electrodes. And what you do is you basically, I mean, think of it in the simplest possible sense, like smearing peanut butter on a piece of toast, right? You, you take these neurons or neural progenitor cells and you smear them on top of this electrode grid. And um, there are certain binding chemicals as well, which can cause them to stick better. And these neurons are so close to these electrodes, just physically close to these electrodes, that when they fire, you can pick it up. You need very sensitive electrodes, but um, you can set it up that way. It's interesting. I mean, it's a little more sophisticated than Frankenstein, but then you say just smear it over like peanut butter and it doesn't sound so sophisticated You, you need a PhD to do that, though. This is <laughs> PhD-level peanut butter smearing. PhD-level yeah. peanut butter. That's wonderful. Okay. Talk to me um, a little bit about what you've actually built. You, you, you taught your neurons how to play ping pong. Is that correct? <laughs> that's a, that's a process that we're working on. Yeah. So basically imagine this, you'd have seen the film, the matrix. We've all seen it. It was like 1990s. We sort of have built like the matrix 0.1 alpha. Uh, so you could imagine that we have what we call a closed loop stimulation system. So that means that when neurons fire, they cause some change in a simulated environment and that simulated environment then will create a stimulus for these live neurons. And that's how you kind of connect up the Pong matrix. So then we need to shape their behavior to actually do something. And that's where a lot of our sort of development and secret source is. But in essence, we use just like any other learning happens through kind of a series of stimulus response cycles, like learning to ride a bike we create a very specialized stimulus response cycle in order to induce a specific behavior that we care about. Very, very interesting. So I just talked to Intel's director of its neuromorphic computing lab, right? And, and neuromorphic- Our sworn enemies. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So neuromorphic computing, of course, you're kind of replicating neurons in a digital form. Can you talk a little bit about that approach versus this approach? Yeah, I think there's a spectrum, right? And so if we, if we look at current artificial intelligence as we build it today using um, artificial neural networks, you know, that's kind of using pre-existing silicon devices that we have, and mostly they're coming from GPUs, so the NVIDIA and AMD stuff. Um, not very much difference in that. And then you start going down the hierarchy and you end up with neuromorphic computing, you know, which is, uh, I guess, silicon that's trying to mimic more biological aspects. So things like, you know, spike trains and so forth so they they kind of have properties that we kind of sort of see in neurons and then we're going all the way down where i guess the next level down we're actually just going straight to the the neurons and using them and i mean the thing about it is that you know not to disintel any of the guys working in neuromorphic i think it's amazing work i think there's a lot more that we don't know about how neurons work i mean it's amazing how these blocks of carbon and and proteins sort of like form together and are able to produce computation. I mean, there are a lot of properties that we don't seem to quite replicate yet. And we're still learning a lot more new things for how these neurons work. So I think it's like, it's taking a snapshot from the 15,000 feet of what, you know, New York City looks like. But when you actually zoom straight down into, let's say, Times Square, it's completely different because you'll see a lot more things that you didn't see exist. 
So for us, we think that it, it's great work that they're doing. And, and I think that some of the stuff that we will be learning also will feed back into the neuromorphic computing space. But for us, we thought, you know what, let's just understand the limitations of what we know and go straight to the source and say, let's just use the same biological substrates and work our way up from there. So the latest version of Intel's Luihi chip, which uses this neuromorphic computing architecture, or can be used to build a, a structure, which is neuromorphic. The latest construct that they built is about 100,000 neurons, sort of to, actually 100 million neurons together, which I believe is three orders of magnitude less than what we actually have in our brains. How many neurons are you actually kind of putting into chips right now? Yeah, so, so the systems we're currently sorry, <laughs> the systems we're currently building, depending on the density, are tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of neurons, and that's brain chip one. So a lot of what we have in our roadmap is scaling that up to yeah millions of neurons. Though I will add that the neurons that you would have in a neuromorphic system aren't exactly equivalent. So simulating a neuron at a high degree of fidelity would take. Well, I mean, we know. For example, some of the biggest supercomputers in the world have been built to simulate like millimeter cube areas of brain material. So simulating everything a neuron does is very difficult. So it's not a direct comparison, but we would see hundreds of thousands of neurons and millions of neurons is certainly more powerful, have more latent power than uh, equivalent silicon system. Very, very interesting. Are I mean, there different... Go ahead. Sorry to add to that point as well. It's amazing to, to, to see what kind of you know, properties emerge from even just several hundred to a thousand neurons. I mean, what is it? Uh, C. elegans, the, the worm, that only has like what? I think maybe five neurons or something like that. It's able to sort of exhibit <laughs> interesting behavior. And then you move your way up to the hierarchy and you end up with things like flies and you know, insects and dragonflies. I mean, <laughs> swatting a fly is pretty hard. They're pretty hard to kill. They, they get around. They do things really well. So... You know, just having a handful of them, you're able to sort of see very intricate, advanced behavior emerge from that. And then as you move up the hierarchy, you go up to things like small mammals and mice. I mean, oh my God, I just saw a video a couple of months back where I think the guys from Virginia Tech were showing that these mice were driving these little cars kind of stuff. I was like, wow. So, <laughs> you know, you, you, it's really a hierarchy and actually the more, I think it's a it's somewhat of an exponential kind of uh, increase the more you actually sort of put in the, the more computation and more intelligence you get out of it. So if somebody does mice NASCAR, I'm all into that. Or, or mice Formula <laughs> One, I'm all into that. Sign me up. I will sign up for the, the, the pay-per-view <laughs> subscription well, well, John, we got to do Dish Brain eSports first. So you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. So talk to me about, project yourself out a little bit and say somebody's actually working on uh, writing a program or an application, an AI application using your chip some years from today. What what kinds of technologies will they use? How will they work with it? Yeah, so we have a pretty, I think, elaborate and complex roadmap for that. But essentially, the systems we build now, as I said, are based on creating this structured stimulus sequence, which is interactive. And that's what we see as kind of the basis of biological learning, learning to ride a bike, learning to um, even walk around. There's a huge amount of constant feedback involved in the kind of heavy and fire together, wire together process that you can essentially only fire together, wire together if you're somehow embodied. So um, the premier way would be to describe your task somehow, probably through some sort of very high level language. And then we would turn that into a stimulus sequence, which would shape biological behavior to fit 
your uh, specification. And the kind of level of automation there is one of the things that we will use essentially computer science and a lot of what you would call regular artificial intelligence to achieve as well. So that's super interesting because, I mean, as you program systems right now, you use high-level language, which often gets interpreted down to machine code or machine-level language, which is more efficient right on the bare metal, so, so to say. So you'd almost have like a biological code in some sense that interprets the high-level code for your biological neurons. Well, I think it's hard to come around it because it's a paradigm shift, right? So what we think is going to be really amazing, and we've seen this with some of our, our chips as well, is the fact that these neurons rewire. They actually reprogram themselves in order to solve the particular task. So, I mean, it's the same thing for, for us as humans, right? Or even a dog. You teach a dog how to play fetch. You're changing its environment. You're changing the stimulus, and it's adapting to it. It's not reprogramming it's not going in there and like you know rewiring that's right but you're not programming each little step right you know it's yeah. not like uh programming today where uh, you know like it's kind of the difference between like programming in python and c versus doing some sort of machine learning task you kind of specify what you want to achieve but you don't in fine detail so all the steps of how to do it and that's where the self-organizing part of using um biological neurons comes in that, that to a high degree you would want them to wire themselves to solve the problem very very interesting and that has profound implications for what it means to program a system down the road if there's this level of self-learning i mean one of the things about what intel's working on is that they're trying to develop ai with way fewer way smaller training data sets right and what you're saying is hey you're going to actually program the system and it's going to learn itself how to do the job that you want it to do exactly I think that's the biggest sort of paradigm shift in the sense that, you know, maybe programmers will be redundant in the future because of this. But it's more of the thing where it's probably going to be something that's required for robotics to really excel. So robotics, they're kind of computer programs as well, right? But unlike computer programs that live in a very deterministic world where every rule is set and you can sort of see what the future looks like, the world that we live in is highly variable. We don't know if there's a car going to like, you know, just get down the road and hit me kind of thing. And, but it's got to plan and predict for all these things. And so having a system that learns by itself and reprograms in this environment is going to be really important for robots to actually operate in, in the real world. So I think that's something that, you know, we, we have to come around this. And this is the reason why we, we, we try to build uh, environments in games like Pong, Space Invaders and so forth, so that we can show that these things learn. There's a sort of universal learning algorithm backing it, but it's the environment that changes. I think one analogy which is really good is like looking at it as a sort of a spectrum. On the one hand, you've got CPUs as we know them. That's the von Neumann architecture. So that's RAM, registers, uh, like an instruction code. And then you have kind of on the other side, the work we're doing, which is using like completely what you call analog biological systems and then I think, you know, neuromorphic is kind of over here where it's like, we're using the same basic technology as von Neumann architectures today, but we're sort of trying to make it a little bit more connectionist. So you've kind of got like von Neumann over here, connectionist over here, and we see ourselves as like way pushing over that side. Super interesting. How far away is this from something that you could ship as a development chip? And perhaps how far away from something that would be shipping and publicly available? 
Yeah, so there are quite a lot of technical challenges and hurdles that we are still working on at the moment. You know, one of the key components is actually having a sort of artificial life support system. So we got to keep these things alive for, you know, a year (laughs) or so. So we're working on a perfusion circuit that will sort of circulate clean or healthy media through the system. And while doing that, also transporting out the waste materials. So, you know, in a sense, like the artificial life support system, like the Darth Vader kind of thing, but for the neurons. And one of the keys for that, one of the reasons why we want to do that is so that we can extricate these neurons from the laboratory environment and they can start being embedded into lots of different things like data centers, cars and robots and stuff like that. But for us, the, the roadmap really looks for us to showcase these things working and then opening up our laboratory remotely to researchers around the world to actually try their hand at building environments for our system. So we kind of take the same model that the guys use with quantum computing, where the machines are really hard to sort of replicate initially, that is. And, you know, using cloud computing and plugging it into like AWS or uh, Azure uh, made a lot of sense for actually researchers to sort of get their hands dirty without having to touch any wetware biological substrates. Super interesting. I mean, uh, at some point, it may actually make literal sense that, yes, my computer died. (laughs) You may have to have (laughs) some kind of life support system in place. And you might have neurons that age out and you have to replace individual neurons and they have to be trained up and your pathways. It's kind of mind boggling what this could lead to. But Project yourself out, and I don't know if three to five years is the right time frame, but project yourself out to a time frame when you're actually shipping hardware. And there's a good translation software for somebody who can code just about any language and it translates to instructions that work. What kind of systems, what kind of products, what kind of applications do you envision being possible? Yeah, no, I think it's it's a really great question. And I think this is something that is limited by the imagination, really. And and for us, I mean, we're kind of, I guess, Andy and I, and maybe a lot of people, your viewers as well, are sort of driven by science fiction. So we see a lot of applications from, say, robotics being one of them to data centers. So, you know, the applications for these things would be things like that require planning, that would require operation in the real world. So anything that requires sort of fluid intelligence, which is the ability to sort of move from one problem set to another problem set uh, fluidly, I think would be an excellent application for this. But having said that, I mean, it's very hard for us to know where this could go because we work on the base technology. And just as the first transistor was built, nobody really imagined that it was going to form the backbone of the internet or the fact that, you know, we'd be able to do this call (laughs) around the world right so i mean i guess the first thing they were thinking of well well, maybe we'll just make this thing to switch really quickly so we can break some code and win the war kind of thing but you know there are a lot of other applications that you really just got to get it into the hands of very talented creative people for them to apply that technology on super super interesting i can totally see that and i agree with that also as you see uh, robots getting integrated more into manufacturing more into smart home uh, more into smart city as well and just a lot of opportunities to be in complex diverse environments where you don't really want to train a robot every little thing that might come around you want some self-learning capability could be super super interesting okay so what's so what's your next challenge Uh, what's the status right now what's your next major challenge Yeah, so the status right now is that we have this sort of world-class neuroscience lab that's uh, fairly fully operational now. We have our kind of 
you know, matrix 0.1 alpha software. We have done this sort of experimental data series we call Genesis. So that's about a uh, hundred hours of fine grained data collection of like neurons learning as they're hooked up to this system. And we have some really promising results from that. So we're getting play, which is depending on how you measure it often like statistically significantly well significantly above kind of a simple random baseline so we're seeing some kind of behavior shaping but we really wanted to get it to the point where a sort of a lay person looking at it goes like wow it's really playing as opposed to like we can detect a behavior change so i think our sort of next major challenge in this quarter is a kind of expanded rigorous data collection sort of push plus on top of that really increasing the performance and like tuning the system that we have currently and then i think into the future is scaling up i mean scaling up is something that clearly is very important to us so i'd say those were our two biggest challenges would be really betting down what we have and producing something which is unambiguously like you can just watch it playing on say like a video stream on twitch and say, hey, you know, like, well, that's that it's, it's playing and then really scaling up to sort of three dimensional structures with sort of like actual three dimensional electrodes. So we're not just limited to this 2D plane, I think would be the next big thing we really want to push towards. Super interesting. And you have challenges unlike almost anybody else in the field of AI or hardware, because you've not just got the technological components, you've got a biosphere to create and maintain mm -hmm. and support. Thank you for joining us. I uh, really appreciate hearing from you what you're doing. Uh, super, super interesting work. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. As you've been watching with us, thank you for joining us along on the AI show. Whatever platform you're on, please like, subscribe, share, comment. If you're on the podcast later on, please rate it, review it. That'd be great. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is John Goodseer with the AI show. Mm -hmm.